0: Before we begin, a brief moment of begging. Please remember that only podcasts with listeners survive, so please, if you like this podcast, spread the word however you can, on social media, or by dropping reviews wherever you source your podcasts. Thank you so very much. Your support is appreciated. I should warn you that this episode will contain significant spoilers for the films The Sorcerers, the Bloodbeast Terror and Witchfinder General, if this does not put you off, then welcome to the show. My name is Val Thomas, and this is the Big Screen Biograph. recounting the stories, behind the people, behind the films. This time, Tony Tenza Part 2, The Sorcerer. In England, horror runs deep and has a long memory. In the 17th century, A new terror emerged an egotistical vain liar named Matthew Hopkins a religious zealot with enough legal training to be dangerous he roamed the southeast of England hunting and killing people accused of witchcraft he preyed on the weak and the isolated these were harsh times war had destroyed the landscape authority had broken down Shops failed, families starved, and the uneducated populace looked for someone to blame. Hopkins was an expert in examining local gossip about the elderly, or the alone, or the different. He converted malicious whispers into accusations of devil worship, pulling the frail from their homes, stripping them naked, and shaving them, pricking them, forcing them into stress positions, haranguing them and depriving them of sleep until they confessed, hysterical and weeping. It was well-paid work. Hopkins received payment for every witch hanged at the gibbet. Over the course of two years, Hopkins enriched himself by killing over 200 people, most of them women, many of them elderly. He styled himself the Witchfinder General. His most prominent victim was a clergyman named Reverend Lowes. But the killing of a vicar proved to be the undoing of the Witchfinder. He was denounced as a witch himself and disappeared, never to face justice. But how does this dark history of religious mania, paranoia and murder relate to a groovy British filmmaker living in swinging London in the 1960s? it makes for a bloody good exploitation film. That's how. Tony Tenzer has in the early 1960s building up a reputation as a savvy exploitation film producer. A man with a knack for finding that aspect of a film which was saleable. Whether it was sex, horror, action, sex, violence, sex, or sex. With his business partner, Michael Klinger, he'd gone from making cheap, needy movies about women cavorting with beach balls to making high art films that won awards at the Berlin and Cannes Film Festival in just five years. But when he and Klinger dissolved their partnership, Tony Tenzer found himself in an office with second-hand furniture and just £10,000 to his name. But £10,000 wasn't an insubstantial sum in 1966, and his name had considerable value also, and soon Tony's skill in spotting bold new talent would come to the fore. In this episode, Tony will meet a temperamental but brilliant young artist, and together the two men would make one of the most extraordinary films in British horror cinema. Welcome to Part 2 of The Tale of Tony Tenza. Tony began to rebuild his business modestly. He repackaged old Vincent Price films, which had never been released in the UK. Putting together double bills like Twice-Told Tales and Tower of London were good for a decent return on his small investment, but Tony was keen to get back into the filmmaking business. He was given that opportunity by a producer named Arnold Louis Miller. The two had worked together in the Compton days when Miller had produced their CD exposé documentaries, London in the Raw and Primitive London. Miller came to Tenzer with a half-formed idea about a young man's sexual adventures around London. The result was a cheap film called Mini Weekend, also known as The Tomcat. It was cheap by necessity. Tony negotiated a cheap deal on the film's stock, and he also had to do a bit of the writing, because they couldn't afford a professional. Naturally, Tony ensured that there were some fantasy sequences in there. It was anything to get women in underwear on screen, and this alone was more than enough to promote and market the film to repressed British businessmen.
1: Casanova, Don Juan, Rudolf Valentino, John Barrymore. Great lovers of the past, now let us introduce their modern counterpart, Tom, the great lover of today. I can feel girls' eyes burning into me back, watching every step I take. I wonder why I attract them so much.
0: It was around this time that he took on new business partners and changed the name of his company from Tony Tenza Films to Tigon British Films, with his logo a cross between a tiger and a lion, and as if the Tygon were a symbol of good luck. Shortly after this change, a producer named Patrick Curtis came to see Tony Tenza with both a proposal for another project, and with a young director named Michael Reeves. Penza was immediately impressed. He knew of Reeves from a cheap Italian quickie the director had made called Revenge of the Blood Beast, or The She-Beast, starring Barbara Steele. Well, it's a bit of a stretch to say that she starred, really. Michael Reeves had to make the most of her. She was paid $1,000 and contracted for just one day of shooting. However, the producer Paul Muslansky had cunningly not specified how long one day actually was. And, as it turns out, Michael Reeves worked with her for 18 hours that one day. But Reeves' ingenuity and skill was used to great effect. He continued the shoot for another 20 days and weaved these new scenes in around the Barbara Steele footage to create a silly but fast-moving, campy and fun horror movie, and all for just £15,000. It was an impressive feat and Tony Tenza recognized that there was something special about Reeves right from the start Michael Reeves was only 23 when he made the she-beast he was an intense driven young man passionate about film actually not just passionate obsessive enraptured The movies were a magical world to this young man, and he wanted to be a magician. He told his mother he wanted to direct movies at the age of just eight years old. At the age of 11, he directed his first amateur film, Carrion, about a girl in a wheelchair being terrorised by a sadistic convict. It starred an aspiring young actor, a 15-year-old named Ian Ogilvie, a friend of a school friend of Reeves'. Utilizing an 8mm Bolex camera mounted on a tea trolley for tracking shots, Reeves learned how to make the camera emulate the effects he so admired from his Hollywood heroes. Possibly to spare her tea trolley, Reeves' mother sent him to boarding school, from which he would constantly escape to go to the cinema. His masters would find him agape at 1950s creature features or gritty crime dramas. And when he couldn't get to the cinema, he'd bring the cinema to school, forming a club and subjecting his fellow pupils to his favourite movies. Films like Invasion of the Body Snatchers and Some Like It Hot, over and over. In 1960, at the age of just 17, Michael's family took him for a holiday in Boston, Massachusetts. At large in the USA, Michael took the opportunity to escape to Hollywood, walking himself on a flight to Los Angeles, and heading straight to the home of his idol, director Don Siegel. Somehow he managed to get Siegel's home address, and knocked politely at the director's front door, only to be confronted by an angry, sleepy man in his underpants. Michael Reeves delivered his prepared speech. I've come all the way from England to meet you, because you're the greatest director that ever lived, he said nervously. Siegel, in his pants, looked sourly at the 17-year-old. But in a bit of Hollywood fairytale magic, the director was won over by the youth's enthusiasm and charm. He took Michael Reeves on in a minor capacity, working on Elvis Presley movies. Reeves also continued to cut his teeth on his own projects, including a disturbing short film, a home invasion movie called Intrusion. By 1965, with Siegel's help and connections, Reeves was working regularly on Euro-American co-productions, filming in Italy and Yugoslavia. He even got the chance to stand in for the director of the Christopher Lee movie, Castle of the Living Dead, for about two weeks. And while working on the Irving Allen production of The Longships, shooting in Yugoslavia, he impressed a producer named Paul Maslansky, who helped Reeves raise £15,000 for his first film as director, an Italian co-production called Revenge of the blood beast. Ian Ogilvy, by this time a struggling young actor, got a call out of the blue from his agent. Did he want to star in a movie? Ogilvy was stunned, having lost touch with Reeves by this time. But apparently, Reeves had not forgotten him, and so Ian Ogilvy found himself shooting scenes with Barbara Steele just a few weeks later. Despite the miserly budget, the she beast is a surprisingly fun, quirky little horror film. There are limits to Reeves' talent. He can't hide the threadbare budget, the bad dubbing, all those aspects of the plot shoehorned in to attract audiences. But still, there's promise there. Even today, you can see it. And so it was that Patrick Curtis and Michael Reeves to an agreement with Tony Tenzer. Tenzer and his co-producers would raise £50,000 to produce their first British film, The Sorcerers, from a screenplay co-written by Reeves and his friend Tom Baker, no relation to the actor of the same name. The Sorcerers is a strange tale, completely out of keeping with the output of the two other British horror production houses of that time, Hammer and Amicus. There's no gothic melodrama here, and no cheeky anthology stories. It's a strangely contemporary story, set in the back streets and seedy bars of so-called swinging London. We meet Mike, played again by Ian Ogilvy. He is an insensitive callous youth, who treats his friends and girlfriend Nicole, played by French actress Estelle Irsy, with casual contempt. Bored and ditching them at the local groovy disco Ogogo one evening, he is intercepted by Professor Montserrat, Boris Karloff, who induces him back to his dingy flat. Mike is, of course, sceptical, and becomes even more so when he meets the professor's mousy old wife, played by Catherine Lacey, an experienced British character actress, who is quite wonderful in this role. The elderly duo are beaten down and bitter. The professor had previously been a successful hypnotherapist, but his practice was destroyed by a scandal. Now they are reduced to living without, mocked by dismissive young people, and almost too scared to leave their own flat. But they're about to get their revenge on the young. Mike is escorted into a secret room in the professor's house. It is filled with the sort of gadgets you'd expect Boris Karloff to have behind locked doors. Promised a trippy experience, Ogilvy straps himself into some sort of audiovisual sensory device and is subjected to what I can only describe as intense hypnotherapy.
1: Come and sit down on well, this thing. Yes, sit down. You said you wanted me something new, something you've never done before. Yeah, no, I didn't think that. No harm will come to you. We guarantee it. Sit down, but I just these. What's it the... supposed to do? Dazzling, indescribable experiences. Complete abandonment with no thought of remorse. Intoxication with no hangover. Ecstasy with no consequence. Right, then. see what you can come up with.
0: Mike feels no discernible after-effects, but the old couple can, for it seems that the device has given both the professor and his wife a direct line into Mike's psyche. They can experience, feel everything he feels, but more insidiously, they can use their new powers to take over his mind and to direct him to do their bidding. Yes, it is a far-fetched premise, but it's just a vehicle for Michael Reeves to stage scenes he's really interested in. Mike prowling the back streets and the bars of 1960s London, hooking up with women, going to their bedsets, speeding on a motorcycle and getting into fights, all at the behest of the two elderly energy vampires, eager to start living again through their new puppet.
1: We have the boy use him, give ourselves a few things we haven't had for so long. Why not? Those powers would be used for other people. Yes, of course. But just for a while. Just for a little while. Let us use the boy. We deserve it. Use him for what? We can choose. All right, just for a little while, you can choose anything.
0: Made on an extremely modest budget of £50,000, Michael Reeve's crew employed classic guerrilla filmmaking techniques to keep their costs down, shooting as much as possible out of the studio, without permission, setting up as quickly as possible, getting the shot and moving on as quickly as they could. For this reason, the film has a dynamic immediate feel. It's not documentary style exactly, but it does have the sense of lives being lived all around the action, captured in the periphery of the frame, as if Michael Reeves could turn his camera around and find another story, in another direction, at any point. Of course, guerrilla filmmaking can go too far. We blow up a Jaguar in Notting Hill without permission, says Ian Ogilvie. Apparently, their original intent was to use 10 gallons of petrol to create the desired effect. But would 10 gallons be enough? Would it create a big enough explosion? After all, they only had a small budget. They could only afford to blow the car up once. To be on the safe side, they decided to deploy 50 gallons of petrol. The blast shattered windows for blocks around recalls Ogilvy. The police were called, and the fire brigade. The cast and crew legged it, heading off in nine different directions at once, agreeing to see each other back at the production offices, and hoping for the best, that no one got arrested. Just a few days later, Michael Reeves was at it again, shooting a scene while sitting in the boot of a car going at 100 miles per hour up the M4. His camera was trained upon Ian Ogilvie and Estelle Ursi, who were also speeding along on the back of a motorcycle at the time. Reeves kept calling for Ogilvie to get closer and closer to the car. Fortunately, no one was hurt, and the police were unaware of that little stunt. As for Boris Karloff, he had been approached directly by Michael Reeves to appear in the film. Boris was unsure at first. Late on in his career, he didn't like the idea of playing yet another mad scientist and villain. Reeves was more than happy to accommodate the horror icon, rewriting the screenplay to make the character of Professor Montserrat more sympathetic, and giving the villainous role to the professor's wife, Catherine Lacey. She apparently had no such issues with playing a baddie, and quite honestly, she laps it up, dominating the latter part of the film with her lip-smacking delight at being truly evil.
1: I didn't realize it would be like this. I don't understand. What do you mean? You do, I saw you. You enjoyed it, didn't you? How could have I enjoyed it? A policeman coming, at you. it was dangerous. That was the most exciting part. I saw your face. You did enjoy it. I know that. I did, too. It's wrong, Miss. They're wrong. To be human? We all want to do things deep down inside ourselves, things we can't allow ourselves to do. I'm right, aren't I? But now, we have the means to do these things without the fear of the consequences.
0: Tony Tenzer was absolutely delighted to have Boris Karloff on board, not just for his name on the poster, but because Boris was one of the actors who had made a huge impression on him as a boy. Karloff, a true gentleman of the cinema, exceeded all of Tony's expectations. Boris was always a boyhood hero of mine, he said, and he was the most unassuming man you could ever wish to meet. He couldn't even understand why people wanted his autograph. It was a delight to get the chance to spend time with him. Tony, however, was distressed at the failing health of his hero. At 79, Boris was suffering from acute bronchitis, which robbed him of his strength and made movement difficult. The tall man was also in constant pain with arthritis in his back, and had a leg brace fitted, which squeaked whenever he walked. Tony was astonished at Karloff's level of professionalism, despite the pain. You know, he still remembered all his lines, and he spoke them perfectly. He was old school. He never complained or moaned. Well, that's not entirely true. At one point, a scene where he was made to crawl on the floor, trying to escape through a doorway. The pain became too much, even for this venerable actor. Oh, I can't do this, he snapped. Where's the f***ing doorway? The crew was shocked to hear Karloff, of all people, swear in those formidable tones. But everyone understood. Another unexpected hero of the production was a very young Raquel Welch. She didn't appear in the film, and was well on her way to becoming a huge star when the Sorcerers was shooting. At that time, she was the girlfriend of one of the co-producers, and happily helped out, running errands and helping with the wardrobe. Despite this, the film was in danger of running up a budget. The biggest problem was the young director's inexperience. He redoubled his efforts to plan the nightly setups all over London to make the best use of everyone's time. However, the one area where Reeves never seemed to improve was in his manner with the actors. The perception of the actors who worked with him were that he was cold and aloof, rarely speaking to them. The only exception was Karloff, who got along well with everybody, and with whom Reeves got along famously. Some of the crew were also a little disturbed by Reeves' unstinting depiction of violence The director firmly believed that the horror of violence should be shown with no compromise. So the scene in which a young woman, played by Susan George, is murdered was bloody beyond anything they had seen before. He went right over the top, said one crew member. It was supposed to be a violent scene anyway, with Susan screaming and being stabbed. But Mike was throwing blood everywhere, up the walls, over the crew, gallons of the stuff. It was an obsession with him. Susan was literally drenched red. However, the film was completed, only a little of a budget in the end, and with no significant problems, other than the removal of most of the Susan George scenes, at the censor's insistence. But Reeves' aloof manner, and his refusal to compromise on violence, would come back to create major issues on his next film, The Sorcerers received mixed reviews from the critics, some of whom saw past the low budget and the silly science to what Michael Reeves had really achieved. An exploitation film, yes, but one very different from its peers. You can tell this is the film of a young filmmaker with something to prove. It is radically different from the elegant grandeur of Hammer or the cozy scares of Amicus. This film explodes with youthful enthusiasm in a nightclub as the kids groove to a mod band. This film gleefully states a new, young filmmaker is on the scene and ready to make a statement. Karloff's experiment is low budget, sure, but it also reflects the trippy youth culture of the time, invoking early Pink Floyd concerts and bizarre concept albums. The low budget also required a near-documentary style that Michael Reeves uses to great effect. It is something that George Romero would perfect just two years later with his revolutionary horror film, Night of the Living Dead. But Reeves did it first, bringing horror out of the studios and soundstages, and out onto the streets of real London. Reeves' film won acclaim at the Trieste Film Festival, and garnered awards for Katherine Lacey and Boris Karloff. Tony Tenzer was delighted. The Sorcerers didn't exactly set the box office alight, and even today it is really only known to genre enthusiasts. But it established Michael Reeves as a major talent, and it made its money back. Tony Tenzer knew that he and Michael Reeves would work together again. There was talk of a five-year contract. That was something I thought I'd never do, said Tony, with me little tiny company of only seven employees. unfortunately we never got around to the paperwork. All the same, Tony knew he wanted to work together with Reeves again. It was just a matter of finding the right property. But first, he had another horror film, ready to begin production. From this old house, some evil thing was spawned. What was Professor Mallinger's gruesome secret? And how was his beautiful daughter involved? (laughs) The Blood Beast Terror! The Blood Beast Terror bears no relation whatsoever to the sorcerers. Tony hired old-school director Vernon Sewell to direct this faintly ridiculous horror film about a giant vampire moth, starring Peter Cushing and Robert Fleming. It is clearly another attempt to cash in on the popularity of Hammer films at that time. As Vernon Sewell put it, Hammer were masters at this sort of stuff, so if you were going to make it work, you had to crib from them. The result is a film which barely looks like it was made in the same decade as Michael Reeves' film. The actor Robert Fleming was brought in at the 11th hour to replace Basil Rathbone. Sadly, that wonderful actor most memorable as Sherlock Holmes, but who was also the son of Frankenstein, died of a heart attack just a few days before shooting was to begin. Robert Fleming, however, was of that same acting generation, although somewhat more temperamental than Rathbone. This was illustrated when, during filming, one of the younger assistants angered the elder statesman, who grabbed him by the lapels and threatened to box his ears, You insolent young puppy, bellowed Fleming. Peter Cushing was far less intemperate on set, and always found himself beloved by the rest of the cast and crew, but he was very unhappy with his role, and the script, which, to put it mildly, is ridiculous from start to end. Cushing had a quiet word with Vernon Sewell, telling him of his disquiet. Robert Fleming, on the other hand, was far more expansive on the subject this film is a piece of shit, he would say to anyone who happened to be passing. Cushing tried to improve matters. He rewrote much of the heavy-handed dialogue and improvised moments of comedy into the film to lighten the leaden storyline. He was aided in this by the casting of British comedian Roy Hud, and their scene together in a morgue is a rare delight in an otherwise dull tale.
1: Hello, hello. You, uh... Brought me something, have you? No. We want to see the body that was walking about an hour ago. Well, this is a nice surprise, Jeff. Someone have a chat to. You don't get a lot of sense out of these, you know. You know, you've caught me right in the middle of my dinner. I've got pie tonight. Well, it makes a change from cold meat, eh? <laughs> would you like a bit? No, thank you. Uh, it's virtually drained of blood. No normal wound would do that. What could have caused those injuries, Doctor? They could have been inflicted by some sort of animal. Ah uh, John has been missing for a week. <laughs> Thank you. could be most helpful.
0: The film opens in Africa with a British explorer in a very white safari suit and pith helmet being rowed up the Limpopo by a couple of local lads. He doesn't do any of his own rowing, of course, because colonialism. Well, I say it's the Limpopo. This is what we are told, although it doesn't look much like Africa. It looks more like an overcast afternoon in Surrey, and I felt very sorry for the actors playing the Africans. I expect they were freezing. Whatever the explorer brings back from, air quotes, Africa, turns out to be very nasty indeed. And soon police inspector Quennell, played by Peter Cushing, is on the case of a series of bizarre murders, wherein each victim appears to have been slashed about the throat, and completely drained of blood. Meanwhile, Robert Fleming plays entomologist Dr. Malinger, who offers scientific advice on the matter. His daughter is played by Wanda Ventham, also known as mum of Benedict Cumberbatch. Poor Wanda sounds like she had a dreadful time on the production. She doubled as the monster for reasons which make no sense whatsoever. It could be anyone in that costume. She complained. It is true. The murderous moth of the movie is a suitably hideous construction with large staring eyes and a vicious looking mouth. Wanda later explained that the moth costume actually had very impressive wings as well, which we never get to see. Apparently the few shots in which they appear were so laughable, Vernon Sewell decided to remove them and cobble together something less revealing instead. However, Wanda was placed in the costume and then shoved up a tree for one of the film's climactic moments, and then they broke for lunch, and left her up there. The film was shot in mid-August, and poor Wanda was being eaten alive by biting insects. Truly fed up and feeling unappreciated, she managed to haul herself down and headed off to the pub, still with her moth costume on. It was only when she glanced into a shop window, she realized that she was still dressed as a hideous insect. She ripped off her mask and stomped off to get something to eat. And the next day she was bollocked as being unprofessional by Tony Tenzer. As a low-budget horror film, the Blood Beast Terror is not without its charms. Peter Cushing really does salvage what he can of the film. And if you like costume drama horror from the 1960s, it is likely you'll find something to enjoy. But the direction is only adequate, the special effects are dreadful, and the music incredibly heavy-handed. Compared to the output from Hammer or Amicus Studios in the same period, this is very thin soup, and Tony Tenzer decided that the best thing to do with it would be to put it on a double bill with Michael Reeves' next film, But what project would best suit the talents of Michael Reeves? The director himself was toying with a couple of scripts. The first was Crescendo, but James Carreras from Hammer got in there first, trying to pull together the financing to make it with Joan Crawford starring. But in the end, it would take that studio three more years to get going on the project, without Joan Crawford. Another proposed script was for a film called The Devil's Discord, which was intended for Peter Cushing, but that actor was going through a very difficult time, both personally and professionally. After starring in the deeply distasteful film Corruption, which Cushing found very upsetting to make, then followed by his experiences on the Blood Beast Terror, Cushing decided to take a sabbatical to look after his wife Helen, who was very ill at the time, and so again, that project went nowhere. But back at Tygon, Tony Tenzer's skills at charming people and knowing everybody was about to pay dividends. Typically, the early prints of an upcoming novel do the rounds of the big studios first. But Tony Tenzer knew a man who knew a man who owed him a favor. And that is how Tony came to find himself reading an unpublished historical novel that he thought would be perfect for Michael Reeves. is called the Witchfinder General, said Tenzer. We'll get Karloff back to play the title role. Reeves was intrigued. But Karloff's failing health, already evident during the making of the Sorcerers, would prevent him from taking on such an active role, which would require him to ride a horse, amongst other things. Michael Reeves was disappointed, but suggested they hire Donald Pleasance to play Matthew Hopkins, the sadistic and venal Witchfinder. It was how he saw the character, as a failure, a little man, a bitter man, with delusions of grandeur that had come to nothing until he happened upon the opportunity to take advantage of people's weakness and paranoia. Tony Tenzer liked Donald Pleasance and had enjoyed his performance in Polanski's cul-de-sac. In addition, Michael called on his friend and on-screen alter-ego Ian Ogilvy to play the heroic Richard Marshall and Hilary Dwyer to play his fiancée Sarah. In the film the young lovers find themselves targeted and their lives destroyed by Matthew Hopkins to satisfy the vile lust of the Witchfinder.
1: There have been threats to us since you were last here. Threats? Why? We've been called papists and idolaters and filth chalked up on the walls. They say we are king's creatures. And should be pilloried and worse who says these things Become outcast in our own village rest easy now no one shall harm you i put my oath to that
0: michael reeves began fleshing out the script which he saw as a classic tale of injustice and revenge a british western as he put it Meanwhile, Tony did what he did best. He got on the phone and started making deals to get the money together. This was going to be an expensive movie, and Tygon would not be able to finance it alone. Tony Tenzer talked to Sam Arkoff and James Nicholson from American International Pictures. AIP had been the company behind some of the best American horror films to come out of the 1950s and 60s. Particularly notable were their collaborations with almost legendary American filmmaker Roger Corman, who had directed his startlingly artistic Edgar Allan Poe adaptations for AIP. Nicholson and Arkoff were keen to get involved with Tony's project. They agreed to put up £32,000 towards the budget, but there was a catch. Despite the fact that the film had precisely nothing to do with Edgar Allan Poe, the two men thought that this film could be a good opportunity to continue their Poe cycle anyway. They wanted to rename the film for the American market, they said. Sure, it could be released in the UK as Witchfinder General, but for the US market, it had to be called Edgar Allan Poe's The Conqueror Worm, after one of the master's poems. As it turns out, this strategy didn't really work. Most of the audiences in America thought it was a monster movie, and complained when no giant worm arrived to terrorise the English countryside. "'You call it what you like in America,' agreed Tony. "'Sure money.' "'And there's just one other thing,' said the men. "'It was about this Donald Pleasance guy. He's a good enough actor.' But it wasn't a name in the States. Well, nowhere near as big a star as... Vincent Price, said Michael Reeves. He was fuming. Not only was Vincent Price entirely the wrong body type for the character that Reeves had envisaged, but, but, Vincent Price? This Vincent Price?
1: At your service. (laughs) No, 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 please. No publicity. I'm very shy, you know.
0: This, Vincent Price. The
1: blades are poisoned. (laughs) In a matter of seconds, no rival. (laughs) Shut up.
0: This, Vincent Price.
1: Bring me my pendulum, kiddies. I feel like swinging.
0: Reeves felt like his film had been sabotaged before he even set up the camera. In his opinion, Price had stopped acting years ago. Now, he was just mugging, playing up to this horror persona, a parody of his former self. The Witchfinder was supposed to be a terrifying figure. How was anyone supposed to find that capering, snickering, hand-wringing ham scary? Tony Tenzer found himself in the role of diplomat, on the one hand trying to convince his temperamental young genius that no, Vincent Price wasn't going to ruin his film, that he was a fine actor and he would be every bit as good as Karloff and, on the other hand, tried to soothe Vincent Price's ego. Not that Price was some vain egotist, quite the reverse. He had a great sense of humour, and was prone to self-parody. More than that, he was loved by everyone who worked with him. He had a reputation as a genial, urbane, generous man. But that was the thing. He wanted to be loved. He wanted everyone to like him, to enjoy his company, to share in his largesse. Vincent Price was therefore somewhat disappointed when Reeves failed to meet him when he arrived in England. It was a small but, at that time, traditional act of courtesy between director and star. However, Reeves was like a man possessed when working and claimed he hadn't time for niceties. But whether he intended a slight or not, Price's feelings were hurt. Philip Wadellove, one of the producers, met Price instead. Price shook his hand and then said, "'Take me to see your young goddamn genius!' And this Michael Reeves, this boy genius, was deeply frustrated by Price as an actor. Price's first scene was as Hopkins directing a brutal new method of execution, It is a deeply disturbing, horrific scene, but the horror is in the agony of a woman's torture and murder, and in the pain and devastation on her husband's face as he watches his wife die so cruelly. These were the elements Reeves wanted to capture on his camera, but someone on the set was distracting him from the action. CUT! VINNY! PLEASE! STOP SHAKING YOUR HEAD AROUND! Stop shaking my head around. Thank you, dear boy. All right, we're going again. Peasants staring, staring at the agony. Paul, you're watching your wife being burned alive. You're not at all happy about it. Accused witch, in agony, and... Action! <coughs> Cut! Vinny, please stop rolling your eyes. Stop. Rolling my eyes. Thank you, dear boy. Right, people, we're going for another take. And Maggie, dear, a little more excruciating pain on this one, please. You're being burned alive, not having a barbecue. And action. Cut. Vinny, will you stop waving your arms around? Stop waving my arms around. Thank you. Oh, for Christ's sake, we're breaking for lunch. That's ten minutes, everybody. Can someone put a sandwich on a stick and get it up to Maggie, please? The cast, crew, and Vincent Price became accustomed to Michael Reeves' frequent ejaculations of Cut! Vinny, Please! Part of Reeves' frustration were the other factors that he had no control over, mainly the English weather, It rained throughout shooting, so a lot of what you see on screen is what Reeves could grab in between showers. Painfully aware of the effect this was having on the schedule, and with Price's contracted time on set running out, Tony Tenzer took the unusual step of buying rain insurance to cover any further unexpected delays due to inclement weather, at which point it promptly stopped raining. And then there were the constant interruptions from RAF jets flying overhead on manoeuvres. And then there was the budget. Reeves' film had been allocated just £82,000, of which 12000 went to price, which may go some way to explaining his antipathy to the actor. This tight budget, growing tighter by the day due to delays, meant that Reeves had to compromise his vision of contrasting the beautiful autumnal British countryside with rotting corpses in ditches and the brutishness of war. For example, the finished film contains only references to the Battle of Naseby, but Reeves had originally planned to include it. A barbaric battle scene full of gore and violence. Tony Tenzer had to break it to Reeves that this would just be too expensive and advised him that if he had to include the battle he would have to shoot it with six extras and a lot of fog. Reeves dropped the idea. Another issue that Reeves had were the constant memos from AIP. Reeves worked well with Tenzer. The two men understood each other, but American International Pictures didn't know Reeves or care about his films. All they cared about was that the film contained all the requisite elements to pull in the drive-in crowd. They forced actors on the director based purely on the fact that they would do nude scenes and he received constant memos from AIP, saying things like, We need more blood, and we need more naked women, and we need more blood on the naked women. Reeves did make some concessions to AIP, including a lovemaking scene between Ian Ogilvy and Hilary Dwyer. Dwyer was very upset at this turn of events. It just wasn't done in those days, she explained. I mean, a few years later, everyone was stripping, But I was terrified. I spent the whole time thinking, my god, my mum and all her friends are going to see my boobs. It's alright, Reeves assured her. I'll use a blue filter. You won't see much of anything. After watching the footage, Dwyer collared Reeves. Well, it's blue alright, she conceded. But I don't see much of a filter. In this context, you can understand Reeves' irritation with price. But his manner toward the actor didn't help. It is possible that a softer touch and a greater degree of diplomacy may have served him better when dealing with as gentlemanly an actor as Vincent Price. But Price had certainly picked up a lot of bad habits along the way. For good reason. People loved his shtick. They still do. His manic Medina from The Pit and the Pendulum. His sombre Roderick from The House of Usher his demented sculptor in House of Wax. And here he was, being told how to act by a 23-year-old? It was while these tribulations and delays were ongoing that AIP came to Tony with a proposal for another Michael Reeves film, and again starring Vincent Price. Tony bit his tongue. Mike was unlikely to have finished his current production before they started work on this new project, he said, stalling. And anyway, how about uh, Boris Karloff instead of Price? You see, AIP had decided to move on from the works of Edgar Allan Poe to H.P. Lovecraft, a horror writer whose dreamlike tales of insinuating madness had been largely ignored in his lifetime but who had risen to prominence after his death as a huge influence on post-war horror writers, including Stephen King. AIP had the rights to one of Lovecraft's lesser stories, Dreams in the Witch House, which they hoped would kickstart a whole new cycle of films. And again, they were keen to shoot the film in England and to split the budget with Tygon. Tony Tenzer brought back the uninspired but reliable director Vernon Sewell and secured a location in the appropriately named Grimm's Dyke, a mock Tudor house and the former home of W.S. Gilbert, the poet who collaborated with Arthur Sullivan on comic operas such as the Mikado. By the late 1960s this house was available to rent and, given that it was reputedly haunted, provided an excellent backdrop Or spooky goings on.
1: You know, this is a very interesting old house. I don't know, it gets a bit creepy sometimes. It's a bit like one of those old houses in horror films. You know what you mean. So Boris Karloff's going to pop up at any moment.
0: (laughs) AIP liked the idea of getting Karloff involved. But there was a major issue – the actor's health. By this time, his bronchitis had made any sort of exertion almost impossible for the grand old man of horror. He was confined to a wheelchair most of the time, and required oxygen between takes. Again, AIP suggested Vincent Price as a possible replacement, but he was by now committed to other projects. Then, Christopher Lee came on board at the eleventh hour. All this star-seeking proved somewhat frustrating for Vernon Sewell, whose star, and therefore script, kept changing, on a daily basis it seemed. And yet still more changes to the script had to be accommodated when Tony Tenzer realized that they had paid Karloff whether or not he showed up. As a result, a smaller part was added for Karloff, so that both Lee and Karloff's names could now appear on the poster this move in itself prompted talk of an all-star horror film, and there was some talk of getting Peter Cushing in on the action too. However, Cushing's sabbatical made him unavailable to the production, and instead they added another horror icon in Barbara Steele, who makes a short but memorable appearance as the green-skinned witch named Lavinia. I
1: am Lavinia, mother of the Mysteries. Keeper of the Black Secret. The Lavinia's influence has spanned the centuries, maintained her innocence up to the very end. They didn't believe her and burned her at the stake. Many people have died mysteriously, horribly. But there's always been a link between those who burned Lavinia and those who died. Curse of the Crimson Altar brings together the two masters of horror. Boris Karloff, Christopher Lee, Barbara Steele as Lavinia, Queen of
0: Terror. Curse of the Crimson Altar. It is this triumvirate of horror icons that makes the Curse of the Crimson Altar of interest to horror fans today, but they are bound to be disappointed by this half-baked effort, which is so much less than the sum of its parts. Neither Steele nor Lee are given anything remotely interesting to do. There are cack-handed attempts to engage with youth culture, by which I mean asinine swinging party scenes, where even the participants look really fed up. The exploitation component of the film is served by gut-bustingly laughable scenes of faux sadomasochism, featuring a man in leather underpants wearing antlers affixed to a motorcycle helmet and the embarrassed-looking hero of the film, played by Mark Eden, is forced to deliver toe-curlingly bad
1: dialogue. I saw all this in my dream. Oh, but that's impossible. You know, I did. It didn't look like this. This is the same room I'm sure I mean, this was here. There was a fire in that forge. There was a a man with anthers. His head... There was a goat. Don't be so ridiculous.
0: Really, the only bright spot in this film is Boris Karloff, who gives his all to the role and brightens things up whenever he is on screen. Good
1: night, Professor. Good night. Uh, Are you going to be in the neighborhood for a few days? Uh, Yes, I am, yes. I have a rather amusing little collection you might be interested in seeing. Oh, really? What do you collect? Instruments of torture. (laughs)
0: Yet it is really heartbreaking to see him so clearly unwell. Christopher Lee expressed his admiration at Karloff's courage. During the course of this film, he could barely walk, he could breathe only with great difficulty, and he couldn't stand. He was in a wheelchair, indoors and out, in bad weather, at night. He must have been feeling very ill, but his humour and his gallantry never deserted him. And although the man physically was in a very bad way. When the director said action and the camera was turning over, it was like a resurrection. To me, that is true courage." Vernon Sewell echoed this. He said to me, "'Look here, Vernon. Do you think I could walk from here to there? I don't want the audience to see me in a wheelchair.' I said, "'I suppose so.' And he staggered across the room and when he got there, he almost passed out with the effort. Shortly after this incident, Boris was admitted to hospital. Late night shooting in the freezing locations had brought on a cold, and Tony Tenzer was terrified that it could easily develop into something worse. I went to see him, but the receptionist told me, I'm sorry, sir, but we don't have anyone here called Karloff, Tenzer thought for a moment. Do you have a Mr. William Pratt? he asked. It turns out that Boris had checked in under his real name, wanting no fuss to be made. He was such a modest, quiet gent, said Tenzer. Nobody in the hospital even realised that William Pratt was Boris Karloff. Of course, Karloff wasn't the only horror icon that Tony was concerned about. Back at the Witchfinder General's shoot, Things were coming to a head, with Reeves continuing to remonstrate with his star. "'Vinny, will you stop overacting? Please, 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 stop rolling your eyes and try to look natural for once,' he spluttered. "'Reeves hated me,' said Price later. "'He didn't want me at all. It was one of the only times in my life when the director and I just clashed.' Reeves put it more bluntly. After a particularly trying day, the director's patience just ran out. I didn't want you, I still don't want you, but I'm stuck with you, said Reeves, in front of the entire cast and crew. And so Vincent Price decided that he'd had enough of this young, so-called genius. He marched over to the director and summoned up every ounce of his remaining dignity. Young man I have made 92 films in my career! How many have you made?" he demanded. Two good ones, muttered Reeves. Now, in some versions of this tale, Vincent Price laughed uproariously, and that was the end of the matter. But not according to Ian Ogilvy. Reeves continued to criticise Price's performance throughout, leaving the normally ebullient actor dejected, He fell back on the company of his young co-stars and his comradeship with the crew to get him through the bruising experience. Tony Tenza tried to cool tensions by taking Price for lunch. We'd just sit and we'd chat, Tony recalled, and he'd tell me about hunting for paintings, which was his real passion. He never made any negative comments about Michael. I think he had a bit of a crush on him, and when Michael treated him indifferently... I think Vinnie's feelings were hurt. Nevertheless, Vincent remained popular with the rest of the crew. On one occasion, when the catering facilities fell through, it was Price who travelled to a nearby village to organise a grand feast for the rest of the cast and crew, which he helped cook himself. And he just loved hosting the other actors for dinner, so he could regale them with witty stories from his glamorous past. Actor Nicky Henson, who plays one of Ogilvy's fellow soldiers in the film, said, Vincent was wonderful with us. We had an absolute ball. We were up all night, every night. And he would stay up with us, drinking and telling stories right through the night. And he would go to work the next day. And he'd be word perfect. Such revelries helped keep Vincent's spirits up. But it also annoyed Reeves, due to Price's habit of showing up hungover or still drunk from the previous night's exploits. Reeves seized with rage on Price's last day of shooting. Price, clearly past caring about impressing his young director, showed up clearly under the influence. Worse still, the location they were shooting in, Oxford Castle, was only available for six more hours before they opened the doors and let in the tourists. Reeves fumed. He had pages of material to get on camera. Reeves stormed over to Ian Ogilvie. You know that scene where you hit him with the axe? He hissed. I want you to really hit him. Are you mad? said Ogilvie. Oh, it's only a bloody rubber axe, Ian. Reeves snapped. Ogilvie picked up the axe. Rubber or not, it was incredibly heavy, with not a great deal of give. Are you sure, Mike? asked Ogilvie. Oh, he won't even notice. He's pissed, for God's sake, spat Reeves. Fortunately, one of the line producers, Philip Waddilove, overheard this heated exchange and went running off to find as much foam padding as he could muster. He shoved it frantically under Vincent Price's cloak before Reeves noticed, with Price drunkenly giggling and protesting, Oh, my dear boy, I, I don't need all that. Strangely enough, all these behind-the-scenes shenanigans really helped the film. Ogilvy's ferocious attack on Price is a fittingly disturbing climax to a film full of extreme violence and barbarism. It's a shocking moment, which wasn't even supposed to happen. The original ending had Ogilvy confront Price in a gypsy camp or something, recalls Ogilvy, and Price was supposed to get pushed into hot coals. But because of the overruns and the lack of money, they had to come up with something cheaper, this is how we finish it, in the castle, decided Reeves. And so Ogilvy and Reeves worked out a scene in which Ogilvy's character, overcome with fury and hatred, murders Hopkins with an axe, venting his white-hot hatred in a hail of axe blows. The scene was supposed to end with Nicky Henson shooting Ogilvy to end the frenzied assault, and then shooting Hopkins to put him out of his agony, But it's not a revolver, explained Nicky Henson to Michael Reeves. It's a 17th century pistol. I'll have to stop and reload. It'll look bloody stupid. Reeves had no time for this. Improvisation was everything that night. (sighs) I've got it. You won't shoot Ian. Instead, we'll just have him scream at
1: you or something. You took him away from me. You took him from me. You took him from me. YOU TOOK HIM FROM ME! YOU TOOK HIM FROM ME!
0: So there it was, the frenzied axe attack, and Ogilvy's fury so incandescent, so convincing, so shocking, that the censor went and cut most of it out. Ogilvy and Reeves were devastated. The irony being that the man who made such wholesale cuts to the film was Reeves' own cousin, John Trevelyan. To be fair to Trevelyan, he was under extreme pressure from the snobbery and public schoolboy mentality which then flourished at the BBFC. This ape tenzer will continue to be a time-wasting nuisance until the board puts him in his place, ranted one of Trevelyan's colleagues. Most of the axe blows were therefore cut out and replaced with reaction shots from Nicky Henson. Reeve studied the doctored print of the film and rubbed his chin thoughtfully. You know, he said, oddly enough, it works even better now. It's even more awful. It leaves it to your imagination. He was not the only one having second thoughts. Vincent Price also watched a rough cut of the film, and was astonished. Robbed of his usual tricks, his dastardly mannerisms, his mock Shakespearean cadence, and his cheeky, conspiratorial winks to the audience. He thought he'd been dreadful. The truth was, he'd never been better. In a later interview, Price reflected on the role, and on his relationship with Michael Reeves. Afterwards, I realized what he wanted from me was a very low-key, very laid-back performance. He did get it. But I was fighting with him almost every step of the way. Had I known what he wanted, I would have cooperated. I think it is one of the best performances I've given. Vincent Price is mesmerizing and terrifying in this role. He wasn't Vincent Price in this film. He was Matthew Hopkins, a morally corrupt, power-mad mass murderer. And in watching the film that day, Vincent Price, the Prince of Horror, horrified himself. As an actor, Price had spent years being encouraged to go way over the top by directors who wanted him to merely project to the back of the drive-in. But you sense here the relish with which Price embraces the challenge to create a character whose outer veneer of respectability and piety masks a mass of simmering perversion. In Price's own words, Hopkins was not just a sadist, else I would not have been interested in playing him. He was a human being with all the usual weaknesses, including a fondness for young women. I saw him as a man who, at first, really believed in the Christian justness of his cause, But when he found a way to turn it to profit, degenerated into an ogre whose lust for power and greed ran away with him, he became the complete hypocrite, cowardly, as well as demonic. And the character of Hopkins is counterbalanced by our hero, relentless in his pursuit of the Witchfinder. And here's where Michael Reeves tightens his grip on the audience, and on our own desire for revenge on Hopkins as Marshall closes in, only to find Hopkins has outmaneuvered him again.
1: Drop that sword, soldier. This man accuses you, Sarah Lowes, and you, Richard Marshall, of consorting with the devil, is that not so, Master Webb? Tis that, sir. Will you describe your evidence to us? I observed the accused talking with their familiars, and making the signs of Satan, sir. And what were these familiars to which you refer? Black cat and a stout, sir. You're a very observant citizen, Master Webb. Well, Sarah, do you confess? And what do you have to say, soldier? I'm gonna kill you, Hopkins. I don't think you'll find that easy. The law is with me, remember? And what are you? an accused witch
0: the film climaxes in bloody violence and all we are left with is death and madness and screaming as marshall is transformed into a hate-filled monster the dark twin of the man he seeks to destroy his once beloved fiance screaming into the dark
1: the tranquillity of rural England shattered by civil war, evil was spawned at a time of strife in the land. Take him, Stern. Look for the devil's marks upon him. Hounding the innocent in violence and terror, this evil man showed no mercy in the pursuit and interrogation of his victims. He was called the Finder General. And amidst the horror of the witch hunt, a story of tender young love but even their innocence is cruelly corrupted by the vile touch of the Witchfinder General. My motive in coming here was to find the truth. Vincent Price is the Witchfinder General. Lust and greed were his only gods. The money from the Magistrate, nine guineas in silver. Good, now we can leave. Ian Ogilvy as Richard Marshall. He stood alone against the forces of devilish destruction. And introducing Hilary Dwyer as Sarah. Filmed in authentic detail and photographed with piercing realism against the actual background of peaceful villages and quiet countryside. Never has England looked so beautiful, yet been so violent. I'm your man friend, John Stern they call me. Man's inhumanity to man portrayed on the screen so vividly that you flinch, so real that you too will fear the Witchfinder finder general. Be the first to see it. Be the first to talk about it. The Witchfinder General."
0: It's a brutal, nihilistic film, years ahead of its time. It was, of course, loathed by many upon its release. The playwright Alan Bennett said, There are no laughs in Witchfinder General It's the most persistently sadistic and morally rotten film I've ever seen. It was a degrading experience, by which I mean it made me feel dirty." It seems that Bennett really didn't understand. That was the point of the film. Reeves fought back, and in an open letter stated, violence is horrible. It's degrading and sordid. Insofar as one is going to show it on screen at all, It should be presented as such. And the more people it shocks into sickening recognition of these facts, the better. His film was championed by other reviewers. The Times stated, Mr. Reeves is no longer merely promising. He already has real achievements behind him. Not merely good horror films, but good films. Period. But all this controversy was music to Tony's ears. The Tygon publicity machine marshalled behind the film, and when some local councils banned it, Tony returned to one of his favourite gambits from the Compton mudie film days. He ran adverts advising people where they could see the film, that the censor doesn't want you to see. But time is the real reviewer. And the fact of the matter is that the new American wave of horror of the mid-1970s is very much of the same tone as Witchfinder General. In that sense, it was a pioneering film, a huge achievement, and remains a British horror masterpiece to this day. The stark beauty of the landscape, in brutal contrast to the actions of the characters, watching the Witchfinder General is like reaching out to touch a Turner landscape only to realize it has been painted in blood. Even Vincent Price understood what Reeves had achieved, and he wrote a letter to Reeves. The contrast of the superb scenery and the brutality make for suspense I have rarely experienced. Following this exchange, the two men seemed to achieve a level of mutual respect. Reeves even expressed a desire to work with Vincent Price again, and the pair were considering two different projects on which they could collaborate Scream and Scream Again and The Oblong Box Michael Reeves, as compulsive and passionate as ever, threw himself into these projects they seemed to consume him Tony Tenzer proposed an Irish gangster film for him A Hooligan's Mob and Michael eagerly began preliminary work on that as well he also began work on a fourth project with a young actor, the son of a famous Hollywood star, who was eager to get out from under his father's shadow. The film, said Reeves to a friend, was the story of young bikers travelling across America. Its title, he went on, was Easy Rider, and he hoped that Peter Fonda and he would get to start shooting his first American film the following year. Looking back on it now, perhaps you can see the danger signs Michael Reeves appears, in retrospect, to be a man running from reality, all too eager to escape into a flickering world of illusion and sorcery. It was not to be. None of it. Not the Vincent Price collaborations, nor Easy Rider. Reeves worked obsessively on all these projects at once, withdrawing from his friends and closing in on himself. Everything was about film, nothing else mattered. The young filmmaker had been suffering from depression for some time, and it was only in the cinema, only in those flickering images or on the pages of a developing screenplay that he could truly lose himself. Forget it all. He drank to get himself through the in-between times, and then to get to sleep. He was trapped in a worsening cycle of alcohol and insomnia and deepening depression. And that aloofness, that fear of contact that kept him from his actors, was invading his private life. Cutting him off and isolating him from the people who loved him the most. He shot right down, his friend and collaborator Tom Baker remembers. It was around this time that Michael Reeves began pre-production work on the Oblong Box. Not for Tygon, but for AIP. This was the project which was to reunite him with both Vincent Price and Hilary Dwyer. But the antidepressant medication he was on caused vicious mood swings, making him difficult to work with. Without Tony Tenzer to act as a buffer between them, AIP removed Michael Reeves from the project in a hammer blow to Reeve's confidence. Following this, he came home one evening drunk and tried to work on his screenplays, but the depression caved in on him and stopped him from thinking. He took some antidepressants and washed them down with more drink, and he tried to sleep. No one knows what happened next. Maybe he took too many pills before falling asleep, or maybe he awoke at one point and took some more. On February the 11th, 1969, Michael Reeves, Britain's most promising filmmaker in a generation, was found still and lifeless in his flat. The coroner, unable to reach a conclusion on Reeves' state of mind, recorded an open verdict. Friends and family still debate what happened, whether his death was a deliberate act of desperation from a desperately unhappy man, or whether it was a tragic accident from a young talent on the verge of greatness. One thing they all agree on, it was a tragedy. Vincent Price mourned. Mike was very unstable, difficult, but brilliant, he admitted and, in fact, the two men had reached a point of reconciliation, even friendship. Vincent Price's letter to Reeves contained the following extraordinary confession. My dear Michael, I must confess, I was physically and mentally indisposed at that particular moment in my life, both public and private, to work with you, but, in spite of the fact that we didn't get along too well, I do think you have made a very fine picture. And what's more, I liked what you gave me to do. Yours, Vinnie. Examining Reeve's possessions after his tragic death, the police found this letter in Reeve's wallet. He kept it with him. Always. As for Tony Tenzer, he always had difficulty speaking about Michael Reeves, even years later. The brilliant young man whose career he had helped was gone, leaving only two films, of which Tenzer was very proud. I was like an uncle to Michael, he said sadly. I had a great liking for him because uh, he was a real film buff. He ate, drank and slept films. That was all he ever wanted to do with his life. To compound his sadness, Reeves had died only days after another man who Tony considered a friend and hero. Boris Karloff, the most human monster Hollywood has ever given us, was taken into hospital and died on the 2nd of February, 1969. The hard-bitten, hatchet man of exploitation cinema later said, I made the Crimson Curse simply to be with him before he left us. Karloff had never stopped working, recording TV guest appearances and cameo roles right up until the end. For Karloff, his work had defined his life, but his proudest achievements were in the work he had done for children. He was a soft-hearted, kind man, with an endless amount of love for the young. He had taken special care to introduce himself to his young co-star Marilyn Harris when making Frankenstein, so that he didn't frighten her when he first appeared. He regularly played Santa Claus at children's hospitals and would visit them the rest of the year round too, with a fairy tale book in his hand to read the children's stories in his mellifluous tones. So when Tony Tenzer popped round one afternoon to see if there was anything he could do for the actor, he should not have been surprised by the response of Boris's wife Evelyn. Come in and have a cup of tea, he's busy recording, said Evelyn. He's in his room, recording children's stories for the Reader's Digest," she told Tenzer. It was the work he loved best. And in his final days, it brought him much happiness. The late 1960s is undoubtedly the pinnacle of Tony Tenzer's production career his work with Michael Reeves, the best films that Tigon would ever make. But change was coming. Censorship in the UK was relaxing, and soon the sex and the violence that Tigon had successfully exploited to pull in audiences would be common currency, even from the big studios. Tigon would find itself forced out and sidelined, along with its peers, Even the mighty Hammer Studios faced a bleak decade ahead, and British cinema as a whole would soon be reduced to a mere memory of what it had once been. The Wheeler Dealers of Wardour Street were about to be forced out of business, but Tony Tenzer and Tygon still had a few surprises for audiences. Some late flashes of brilliance to accompany their steady decline into sleaze and obscurity. Do join us again next time for our concluding episode on the career of Tony Tenzer. This episode of the Big Screen Biograph was recorded in Paraparaumu, New Zealand. This episode was written and hosted by Val Thomas. I'd also like to acknowledge the quite wonderful book, Beasts in the Cellar by John Hamilton, which informed much of this episode, and the fantastic radio play, Vincent Price and the Horror of the English Blood Beast by Matthew Broughton, which you can find on YouTube. I'd also like to thank my good friend Jeff from the At The Flicks podcast, whose help was invaluable in putting this episode together. If you like this show, you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Big Biograph. And if you want to drop us a line about stories you'd like to hear, please email bigscreenbiograph at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you for your company. I shall return with more stories for you, very soon. Until then, goodbye.